Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, what is potentially anyway, the deadliest point of conflict in the Russia-Ukraine war, the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Enohoda in southeastern Ukraine. Both countries have accused the other of shelling the nuclear plant, which is the largest in Europe. Ukraine's President Zelensky has warned that Russian troops who use Zaporizhia as cover to attack Ukrainian towns and cities will themselves be targeted. The G7 group of countries has called on Russia to withdraw to avoid creating a nuclear catastrophe. We'll be catching up very shortly with our reporter Zarina Zabriskie, who was in the area nearby. Before that, a quick reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, edited by Hardeep Matharu. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So do please subscribe to the Byline Times if you can. You get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Let's welcome now Zarina Zabriskie, who's been reporting on the Ukraine invasion by Russia for many weeks now for Byline Times and for the Euromaidan press. Uh, Zarina, hello. You're very close now to this nuclear plant, as close as you can safely be, given that it is occupied by the Russians. Just tell us something about the, the area that you are in, please. Yes. Hi, Adrian. I'm about like an hour and a half away. Um, usually people used to get there by bus. Uh, there is a satellite town that the Soviets used to build next to the nuclear power stations. The same goes for Chernobyl, for instance. Uh, so people lived quite comfortably to uh, attend um, their job at the nuclear power plants. And uh, right now, the whole area around is occupied by the and has been so from March, uh, first week of March, when on the 3rd of March uh, there was uh, this big and infamous instance when the Russians first shelled uh, the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. Uh, and at that time, both uh, the U.S. President Biden and at the time Johnson and Macron, everybody and their mother called on Zelensky in the middle of the night because it was very alarming and uh, uh, I was watching it live as the Chechens entered the territory. There was a big commotion and the people in charge of the nuclear plant were going live on Telegram channels and also social media asking for help. Um, so at the time, fortunately, there wasn't a lot of damage be, being done to the station. But for a few weeks after that, in March, there has been some kind of like detonation of explosives and all sorts of things that the um, nuclear plants are not usually designed for. And I am currently working on a big article. I actually was lucky enough to get to know closely and to interview uh, a former Soviet engineer, uh, now an American citizen, who uh, was at the very beginning of the, uh, the construction of the uh, plant. So he told me a lot of inside details, which I won't share now. But the, uh, the bottom line is that the... Uh, 
power plant itself is built very solidly and funny enough, somewhat designed for the military uh, uh, hostilities, for, uh, in other words, for the war and even some sort of nuclear activities because um, that's what the engineer told me. However, uh, it is extremely dangerous because the part that was not designed for any kind of hostilities is the storage of the nuclear waste, which is uh, like like the similar um, uh, unit in Chernobyl uh, is um, located under a big sarcophagus uh, and uh, that part was designed later and just like in Chernobyl, which is not an active nuclear power station, as you know, uh, this uh, part needs constant attendance and it needs cooling. It needs the water in the cooling pool to be constantly maintained at a certain temperature. Because if the water heats up, the nuclear waste basically blows up without going into much details. And in order to cool this water, Adrian, uh, the station needs to be constantly connected to a power supply. Funny enough, it's an electricity uh, power station and it needs the power. And so um, even though there are six reactors at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, uh, only one of them is currently working. And if the station goes in the blackout state, uh, there is a danger of this uh, cooling pool heating up and either the core reactor, the, the core of this nuclear waste exploding or some leakage uh, to be there. There are also other type of dangers and they are listed by the International Atomic Energy Agency in what they call seven pillars of safety. If somebody wants details, they can Google it up. It's all there and it includes uh, fire safety and ventilation, communication, and all of these pillars are constantly uh, now under danger and being uh, violated by the Russian Federation troops who've been occupied the station since March. So what happened and why do we have all this uh, conversation now is because on the 5th and 7th of August, uh, there was uh, shelling, that there were many instances of shelling and explosions reported, and uh, the Russian side is accusing Ukraine of doing that, and we know that they, they have been doing it consistently and whatever happens, they accuse Ukraine. And Ukraine, uh, fair enough, says that it's the Russian troops that are um, staging a provocation, and there's been a report by the Ukrainian intelligence that the Russians brought a self-propelled gun uh, which uh, from time to time shells at the areas that um, the uh, Russian employers uh, or in the actually not employees but the Russian authorities that are now occupying the station are aware of and they are basically not afraid of the shelling. So the situation at the station is peculiar because there, like I mentioned before several times uh, there are troops and militaries who are in charge of everything, but it's being operated by the Ukrainian agency and Ukrainian employees of this agency, Atom. Uh, and uh, there's uh, 
basically uh, Ukrainian territory, Ukrainian power station, Ukrainian employees, the Russian military who step in between the safety and security guidelines and the Ukra- Ukrainian employees. Plus, there's constant shelling. Yeah, I mean, it is a very strategically important area, isn't it? You've got the Dnipro River nearby, and my understanding is that it, Russian troops are using the nuclear plant as cover to fire into other parts of Ukraine across the Dnipro River. Ukrainian forces have destroyed all of the bridges which effectively is preventing Russia from rearming around that area as well. So it's an area of pretty intense conflict. Actually, it's true that the Russians are constantly uh, firing at Nikopol and other small villages around here. There, uh, I'm very close to this town, but you can't go there. Uh, you have to get a special permit as a journalist. But I'm not interested in um, showing yet more destruction because I, I've shown them, I uh, recorded and shared that before. What I'm interested in is actually, Adrian, getting to the bottom of what is happening at the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power station. And I get very lucky today, and that's the reason why I was late, because uh, in the morning I was attending a special training uh, and a special demonstration of the uh, training and of the uh, measures that the Ukrainian rescues and emergency service would take if there is in fact an accident and if there is a heightened radioactivity and people need to be rescued and people need to be uh, properly processed. So I will be later sharing some videos and pictures if anybody's interested of the unique machinery and equipment and the uh, way the staff is trained to deal with uh, such contamination. And attending this uh, training uh, was the Minister of um, Energy of Ukraine, Galushenka, and the Minister of Internal Affairs, Denis Monastirsky, and uh, I want to say my old friend, the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Yevgen Yenin, because I already interviewed him before on other sites, and he actually knows me and gave me a little interview, so I will be sharing that. Um, and they uh, attended the training, made sure that the staff actually knows what's going on and it was very impressive as you will see from the videos and then there was a little uh, briefing uh, and I think there was BBC and me were the only foreigners there and most of it was in Ukrainian and I am learning Ukrainian and I understand about 80% but I will still have to decipher the rest of the <laughs> of what they said to, to give you the exact uh, summary of the briefing, but the bottom line is that um, there is danger and there will be danger until the Russian troops are out of the territory and on, of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and until the whole area around it within the 50 kilometers diameter is cleared of any hostilities. 
Mm. Uh, Mordecai, who's listening, sent a question, Zarina, and he said, is there really any possibility that Ukraine or Russia would hit the nuclear plant? He says there have only been four major nuclear disasters, uh, Fukushima, Chernobyl, Three Mine Island and SL1, and all have been accidents, not during fighting in a war. Now, Tom Zimbardo, who on Twitter is at Tom Mostly Zen has also then written a, a thread about this in response to Mordecai, and he assesses the the risk, the realistic risk of the plant being in some way ignited by fighting. And he, he doesn't say it's impossible, but he very much downplays the risk of it sort of being accidentally blown up. And you've talked about the resilience that's built into these plants. You know, they're pretty sturdy structures. I also spoke to a lot of Western experts and the experts who build the plants. And uh, it, it, the answer has two parts. The first part is Yes, it's pretty resilient and looks like it is actually okay if you look at the station itself. The second part of the answer is not as optimistic and uh, it's a little bit more uh, disturbing because of the mentioned, above mentioned, nuclear waste and the cooling system. And add to it, and you can look up my article while I'm writing this new one on Zaporizhia. I already wrote uh, for the Byline Times in the beginning of the war, there's an exclusive interview with the Chernobyl power plant engineer where everybody was saying, oh, well, the power plant is not working now. Stop panicking. Well, this is not true because both stations have this nuclear waste uh, and the nuclear waste is where the major danger is. And both Russians and Ukrainians are very, very well aware of that. And while you Ukrainians, uh, from everything I've seen and everything I've read and heard and spoke to people, have no intention to blow up their own station, uh, which is their resource. It's on their land. And it, after all, supplies 20% of the energy to the country. Um, on the other hand, the Russians uh, have a lot of interest of if not blowing up, uh, then blackmailing the world community and using it as a leverage uh, to communicate their needs or to um, basically, like the Russian representative to the United States said, uh, uh, scare people with monstrous provocation that could happen if they uh, pull uh, the troops of the um, territory. So they basically using it, they kidnap people, they kidnap the employees of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and they just basically kidnap the whole station and they hold it hostage and they're using it as yet another tool of blackmail. Mm. Uh, I want to talk about uh, another aspect of the war as well, which is Ukraine's seemingly increased ability now to penetrate deeper into Russian-held territory. So in recent days, there's been an apparent attack on a Russian military base in Crimea, which, of course, is Ukrainian land that has been occupied now by Russia since 2014. And Russia claiming that this was sabotage of some sort, some kind of internal sabotage. But all the evidence suggests that Ukraine now 
is able to fire missiles much deeper into Russian-held territory. Is that how it's been seen in Ukraine? And is that giving Ukrainians confidence that they can turn the tide of the war? Well, um, you know, I didn't have a chance to check uh, the news and the channels I rely upon on my information and for my daily reports on Euromaidan press, because not all the channels you can rely on, um, because I was at this training and at the briefing. But the last time I checked was in the morning, and there were no official confirmation from the Ukrainian government that these were Ukrainian troops, in fact, hitting uh, the Russian uh, ammunition depot an airfield in Crimea and there were several explosions including yesterday in Crimea um, uh, there basically were jokes like don't smoke next to the explosives and stuff like this it's mainly the um, international experts uh, like British intelligence and the Institute of Study of War and other experts who come to the conclusion that these are the uh, elite Ukrainian um, uh, detachment that is working in the Crimea on exploding these resources and breaking down the supplies lines of the Russians. Uh, since there were no official confirmation, uh, I'm reluctant to comment on that. Uh, like, my personal opinion is like, of you know, I agree with the experts that it does look uh, that it's a job done uh, there locally. I mean, we don't have any evidence that they uh, that the Ukrainian troops are using the newly delivered um, weapons, say HIMARS or any other long-range weapons. Until we have this official confirmation, it's better not to try and make some theories or conspiracy theories. But certainly there's more confidence to answer your question about um, uh, the ability Ability of Ukraine to counterattack, at least locally here, uh, because we simply see the uh, Russian troops and the Russian citizens who occupied uh, Ukrainian territory in 2014. And believe me, I know it's Ukraine. I was growing up partly in Odessa in summers and partly in Crimea. And as I was a teenager, I was in Crimea a lot. And it's Ukraine. I mean, if you were there, you know very well it's Ukraine. Like people speak. Ukrainian, they it's a part of Ukraine. So all these years, for eight years, this area was occupied by the Russian troops who invaded it. So now seeing these people fleeing, everybody feels elated. I feel elated. I see these videos where Russians say, oh my God, we have explosions, we have to go back to Russia now. I mean, you just, you know, you feel good, it feels good. I hope that personally, now let me emote, I hope there are more and more explosions to come and that they, uh, well, to go back to, from my emotions, because who cares, um, uh, on the official uh, part, Zelensky two days ago uh, founded a committee uh, on the Crimea and on getting this territory back. And I believe he was supported by the Canadian government. And now we're seeing a lot of movement, uh, you know, concerning Crimea. There's, there's certainly a notion in the air that the Crimea will be a part of Ukrainian victory. Let me put it this way. Mm, well, that would be a, a significant blow for Russia if it, if it were to be not only beaten back from Ukraine, but then also to lose the territory that it occupied in 2014. To go back to the nuclear uh, 
reactor uh, where you're relatively close anyway, Zarina, the, the International Atomic Agency are keen to visit. Uh, President Zelensky has been critical of the United Nations. He said that they have not been doing enough to facilitate the visit. But if the IAEA is allowed eventually, and Russia has certainly been putting some restrictions in the way of that, what difference would that make? It's a very good question, Adrian, and the answer is very complicated, and that's a part of my research that I'm doing now. I'll try to boil it down, because I know, like, this show, we're not going deeply into things. We're just trying to give, like, some main... uh, analysis of the of the major trends so what's important to know here is that uh international atomic energy agency which is headed by the secretary general grossi who is an argentinian uh, citizen uh is not uh as impartial as it might seem or as it should be. And that was one of my questions to the Minister of Energy of Ukraine right now at the briefing. Um, There's been a research, and not just by me, but um, last April, I believe, or March, uh, Greenpeace came up with a brilliant uh, piece of research uh, showing uh, the number of the Russian atomic agents Rosatom, which now is uh, present at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, how many of the employers of the Russian atomic agencies are now currently working for the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency. And there are, the numbers are astonishing. Uh, somebody gave me 80%, but I'll have to check it out. But there are about 10 or 12 people who are very close to the management, to the administration of the agency. Besides, uh, the one of the deputies of Grossi, Secretary General, is Mikhail Chudakov, who, who is a veteran of Rosatom, of the Russian Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, and it goes much deeper. Like when you look at the infiltration, let's call things what they are, of the agency by the Russians, um, which shouldn't be a surprise to us, Adrian, and the Byline Times and our audience, because we've been covering the infiltration uh, by the Russian oligarchs and by the Kremlin of the international community and, say, a London scene, right, and the European uh, political landscape. It doesn't surprise people who knows who know what's going on. But there's also a financial part to it on which I'm working now, where uh, Russia, Putin's Russia, has been traditionally donating a lot of money, uh, making a lot of contributions for the International Atomic Energy Agency, which exists from the country's contributions. And that is a factor that also uh, puts the impartiality of this agency under you know, at least more scrutiny than it deserves. Uh, and uh, when you listen closely for for what the United Nations are saying, what the IAEA uh, are saying, they never really um, name names. They they try to play, you know, this uh, both sides have something to say. Um, You know, what is it Trump said? Both sides, like 
there's this infamous saying, basically saying, not saying, let's put it this way, not saying that the Russia in this particular case is the aggressor country that broke the border of the sovereign country and uh, captured the property that belongs to this other sovereign country. And they're not naming names. They're all sort of language which is very elusive. And um, sometimes, you know, they would occasionally blame Ukrainians for breaching the seven pillars of uh, safety. And uh, basically uh, what the ministers were saying at the briefing is uh, how can the Ukrainian side ensure the safety of the object they, they, that they don't manage? They can't. They don't have access to it. Um, so I hope I answered your question. Yeah, well. yeah, no, no, it's good. And I, I just want to go back as well to this thread. It was, I recommend people follow me out down on Twitter by Tom Zimbardo, who is at Tom Mostly Zen. And he and the experts who were on, as I say, make you know, quite a good case for us not becoming unduly frightened or unduly worried about the risk of some catastrophe relating to this nuclear plant. And I would encourage people to read that just to kind of get a bit of perspective and a little bit of balance. But I had an interesting comment by Saltley Gates on Twitter saying, there are always idiots, accidents, malfunctions and mendacity. Then think about whether Russian or, or their ruling caste give a toss about radiation or the people of Ukraine. And this, I suppose, is the fear, isn't it, Zarina, is that it, it doesn't necessarily take a deliberate attempt by Russia to somehow cause damage here, or indeed by Ukraine. The very fact that we have missiles and guns firing close to this nuclear plant means that the risk of some kind of catastrophic incidents is obviously far greater than if there were no weapons in that area at all. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, anybody with any sort of like logic can see that. And uh, not to go into that, I can just bring uh, back the example of the Russian soldiers in Chernobyl uh, digging trenches. By now, there's evidence, there are um, satellite photos, and there are uh, people who eyewitness them uh, locating uh, their camps in the most contaminated areas. Uh, in the so-called Rudy Forest, the Red Forest uh, of the Chernobyl alienation zone. Uh, they're just that uneducated, and they had the maps from 1980s, and they had no idea where they were. So, yes, with this type of personnel, anything is possible. Of course. Plus, I want to bring back uh, the what is known from March um, uh, events, uh, the, the parts uh, that were present at the area in the station when they first entered were Chechens, uh, who again are known, um, these particular detachments of Chechen troops are known for the very low level of education. And uh, some of them don't, I believe, might not be reading Ukrainian in the, I don't know if they read Russian, they, they have their own language, Chechen. They might not understand what the signs on the walls are saying. So anything is possible. And you simply, a nuclear power plant is not the place where you want to have people who are not trained to be there, period. 
Mm. I want to ask you another question. This has come in from a listener. This is from Graham. He says, is it true that there is a build-up of Russian forces in Belarus? And how will that play out for Ukraine as a whole? Uh, yes, um, good question. Thank you. And I, I didn't go to Belarus personally, but mm. uh, as a person who writes reports on a daily basis and goes through a lot of material, according to the um, independent journalistic uh, group called uh, Belarusian Gayun, uh, there is a build-up. Uh, close to the Ukrainian-Belarusian border. And during the last week, it actually um, intensified. And there's, there have been reports of the Russian planes delivering more military equipment, and there's seen movement there. So, yes, it's a concern, and I actually want to look more into it. I didn't have time because I'm working on this nuclear power plant project. But it certainly concerning and uh, um, th there could be multiple multiple uh, threats coming from that area. Serena, it's been great to speak to you as always and you know that we'll keep updating our listeners from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and making sure that they are kept in the loop with your brilliant re reporting. I do recommend that people check out your Twitter account at Zarina Zabriskie and there they'll find Adrian? links to you. Go on, Zerini. Yeah, especially today, because I'll be sharing a lot of material from this briefing and from this brilliant training. And um, I basically, pun not intended, had a blast in Zaporizhia. Um, I interviewed the head of the region, whose uh, 16-year-old son was kidnapped by the Russians and held in captivity of, and uh, uh, observed tortures and like a horrible story for 90 days. Um, and this is the head of the Parisian region. And uh, he's a uh, remarkable man and he gave me a long interview. So I will be sharing that soon, uh, along with the uh, interesting clips from the rescue station where a lot of interesting things happening, including a little uh, tour and a little excursions into the barn where the uh, Russian rockets are being kept to see what grads are like, what smerts are like, and um, an interview with a sap of the, the person who's in charge of demining these rockets. Um, that looks such brave people. I, I, I have no words for that. So, and from here, I'll be moving most likely through Kiev to Chernobyl. So if anybody's interested in that, uh, follow me. We'll be doing more shows from there and uh, I'll be sharing the information. Brilliant. So she's at Zarina Zabriskie on Twitter. Very easy to find and you'll find links there to all of her work, including some of the work she does for Byline Times as well. Thank you, Zarina. And as I always say to you, please stay safe. We'll catch up with you very shortly. Thank you. Uh, Zarina Zabriskie. And before we go, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to the byline times our wonderful monthly newspaper we can report without fear or favor and hold the rich and powerful to account because we are not funded by the rich and powerful we are funded by ordinary subscribers people like you so do please subscribe if you can get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com that's at bylinetimes.com thanks very much indeed for listening see you next time bye bye now bye